work. Um, I'm waiting on this screen here to change and whatever. Um, wanted to start out very, like, at the beginning. Right? It helps to start at the beginning of things. So a critique is a fancy word for you questioning the philosophical assumptions, not just of the affirmative generally, but also of the plan, right? So of the things they say and of the plan itself. And that those assumptions are, and those criticisms are based in philosophical literature. So it's not just based in um, kind of what you might see as Tumblr complaints. So like sometimes I think it gets reduced to like basically the level of things that you could see on, yeah, let's just do this. Okay, so, and then restart it. So I think that sometimes we understand it as grounded in these like complaints, but the best ones are grounded in complex philosophical systems uh, that require you to read in-depth philosophy and then engage what it means in terms of policy making, right? Not just, um, you know, you said one thing, I think it's bad, but rather what are the assumptions at play in the idea that we should pass this policy and why is that something to critique or otherwise, you know, um, reject? So I think critiques in LD get a lot of hatred from certain sectors. I think that they're very strategic. There's two reasons they're strategic. The first is the one that Booker will hate and all of you will hate, which is that you want to drag your opponent so deep into a land of philosophical engagement that the and of fancy language that they're unable to see which way is up and which way is down and then all of a sudden they've dropped a bunch of arguments and the debate is over that's the way i debated i love it it's the way to do things the second reason is because it's uh applies in almost Every to almost every affirmative, right? These are generic arguments that apply across the board. Why that is helpful in some ways, I think, is because if you are good at debate, like just good at debating, then it allows you to not think very hard about debates you can easily win. So the reason that the top a lot of the top debaters, not all of them, read a critique in every debate, at least in every early prelim debate, is because it takes a lot of energy to think about every debate. But if you have a critique that you know really well, where it's all blocked out, then you can mostly just read and win a debate, if you're good at debate. And you want to save your energy for later debates. So like if you're in the semifinals of every tournament, you don't want to have to think about round one. Like round one is not a round that you 
Like, you should just roll out of bed and be like, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to win this debate. And probably, like, the first four debates, you should be that way. And then it might get a little tough, but, you know, that's fine. Um, all right. So, we want to think about, and there's two ways that debates are read in the, can I email this to you, Booker? What are you? You're Booker B. Mendez 16 at JCU? Yep. All right. Yeah. Um, so you can read it as kind of the biopower DA judge. So that's like, you have a link. The F does something bad. You have an impact. That bad thing that you do is bad for various reasons. Whatever they are. Then you're like the alternative. And they're like, we should do this thing. Okay, round over, right? You read it like a disad. You act like what matters is the linear relationship between these things. What matters is the, you know, um, ultimate impact of the bad thing the AF does, but you don't engage at least complexly with the ideas of the affirmative, which is why I would encourage you to think about the second way, to read deeply, to question the affirmative deeply. And I'm going to, as soon as I'm going to provide you with the list of things that you want to do in the NC and NR in order to accomplish that. So you need here's the list of things that you want to do in the NC. So you need to have a thesis of your criticism that explains the concepts that you're going to critique and what your beef with them is. So, for instance, last year we read a Foucault a fair amount because, like, it's a popular argument, because I love Foucault, all of the above, right? Um, these, this thesis will be something like the concepts of population and security that underlie the affirmative are, have a history and are things that we should question. They're not natural. And then you want to argue and relate that to specifically what the affirmative does that develops those concepts. So then we were like, the affirmative in particular extends surveillance technology because they're like, we do cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is 100% a surveillance technology, right? So that 
technology allows us to discipline and develop um, these populations along the lines of state racism, right? And then you want to have an impact that has a framing mechanism or is not causal so much. So it's... So we'd argue that when we think along the lines of populations and disciplining them, then that kind of discourse lends credence to state racism and genocide and murder. So once we start thinking about populations as, you know, things we can observe, then that inevitably allows the intervention of racist thinking, like populations that are better or worse than each other along some biological lines or survivability, and that allows us to kill them, right? And so the, that kind of impact argument in framing is helpful because it doesn't, it gets us away from thinking of it as a disad and more allows us to say, whenever they say something, you say that's another example of what we mean, of the way you think about the world. So other ways you do this is by framing your impact, not as a consequence, but as something we should question first. So you'll read a lot of, hear a lot of Capcase from Penn State that say ethics are, come first, that capitalism is unethical, and it doesn't matter what the F causes, as long as we win a link, you should vote negative because it's unethical to be a capitalist and to engage in the systems of capitalism, right? And that means we don't have to win a kind of causal dissad type argument. Or you'll hear this with ontology. So ontology we'll talk about in a little bit is the... Um, understanding of what it means to be a being and what a being is and so people will argue you have to question what a being is before you can engage and know the world and we'll see that and you can i don't know what's going on here um it's just not working for some reason unclear um, so, but you can pull this up on the Discord, in the lecture Discord. I've already uploaded this. So then in the NC, you also want to make an argument about epistemology. You want to start that debate really early. So you want to say that because this system of thought that the affirmative engages in, this way of engaging in the world is, is bankrupt. It misrecognizes the world fundamentally. So on this year's topic, it's going to mostly have to do with like solvency. So it's going to be arguments like our capitalist understanding of the world or our managerial understanding of the world overestimates our ability to actually intervene and solve problems. It assumes it's mechanical that if we just decrease the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, then we will solve extinction. When in reality, there's a bunch of other stuff we're doing that's bad, right? Um, on last year's topic, it was much easier because last year's topic was fake, which is an argument that I voted on in maybe like 10 per plus percent of the rounds. It's just cybersecurity is fake. People invent threats to make money because they want to sell 
um, antiviruses. Uh, you know, it's hyper real and doesn't really exist and who cares? That was an argument that like, you know, I voted on. Or like the people who write your cards are in some way influenced by the broader system. And we'll get to that. We'll particularly discuss that. I'm going to talk about at length about the CAPK this afternoon. And we will talk about why basically all of your authors are like bourgeois pigs. So who don't know anything about the world. So then you want an alternative. The clarity of the alternative depends on your judge. So some judges really, really, really love concrete alternatives. They're like, the world will look like this. Um, so like, I think the best example of this I saw running around last year is I think it was Jack Crawford or someone from Lewis and Clark was running around just being like Stalin was good actually. Uh, that's, we should, the USSR is my alternative. Uh, which is pretty dope. <laughs> I know him. I can imagine him saying it, that. It was pretty dope, uh, but it was not strategic because mistakes were made by Stalin. Uh, so, you know, he's on the hook for all of those mistakes. And it leads to this, like, debate of comparing worlds, which is not where you want to be on the negative, right? Remember when I said that good critique debates drag the affirmative into a world in which they don't know up from down and they don't know what's going on, but you and the judge know what's going on. The more concrete your alternative is, the more grasp of what's going on the affirmative has. And that's bad. You want to confuse them as much as possible. So uh, for me, like I'm willing to just be like, yeah, I'll protest this shit. Like my ballot is a protest. I vote no. Like, let's burn this down is like enough for, you know, like a growing number of judges in the community, but there's still people who want it to be concrete. So you need to use good judgment around those lines. And that's like going to be a consistent theme, I think, uh, of this lecture is how you debate the K really depends on your judge and what they expect of you. If you're in front of me, go wild. But if you're in front of someone like Booker, be concrete and specific and describe things in as much detail as possible. Because he will hate it when, you know, you re-clarify everything in your rebuttal and then, like, yeah, the, he will, won't vote for you. Um, some people also expect a framework argument to be in the NC. I don't, personally, and some people don't. But, like, if you're going for, like, a methods K or RK comes before the AF, they want you to start developing that early. Whereas I don't think you have to say your framework argument until the AF says their framework argument. And then you can explain why your framework, i.e. the reason why your critique comes before or supersedes policymaking, is good. But, you know, I think that the best critiques do all of these. They're not just three-card disads with a counterplan slash all. They're a deep investigation of the affirmative. So in the NR, then you need to develop your arguments. 
in relationship to the app without answering first the arguments that the affirmative made. So you need to do an overview. You need to talk about the affirmative without engaging what the app said. And then you need to use that reframing of the debate to make everything the app said not matter. So a good example of this is link debates. So I would recommend against reading new link cards in the NR and LD because of the time difference, but you should develop further your link arguments from your AR or your NC in the NR. And you should do it in much more specific terms. So a good example of this is the idea that this year, on this year's topic, energy companies will take the money and run. It's like, yeah, you're going to give this them this subsidy, but they're going to continue polluting fossil fuels, and you're just a, you know, you're just buying them off. This will be a link argument on like every K this year, because basically every K author thinks for in various language and frameworks thinks that capitalism not so hot, corporations going to take the money and run, right? Um, so this scenario allows you to then reframe what the affirmative does in a way that makes like probably a lot of their answers not really work. Because if you're debating a critique and they say we solve climate change because we have this evidence, you can, and they make that argument like the extinction outweighs argument, then you've already made above on the flow a number of arguments as to why they don't do that. That the app does not have an answer to because they are taking their solvency arguments at face value. When their solvency authors are really just advocates for these corporations that are going to take the money and run and not solve the app. Or they're focusing so much on climate change that the terminal impacts are inevitable in their system, which means they can't access any of their extinction first arguments. So like, yeah, maybe we decrease carbon in their framework, but like a lot of the critiques are going to be like, yeah, you decrease carbon so we can save it for, for later or we're because, but we're going to still, you know, destroy the environment in these various other ways. You just solve a symptom. Well, if it's like climate change causes extinction through biotic extinction, then, you know, if we continue like destroying all the resources, then it doesn't really matter if we die of climate change in 50 years or in 100 years because we have no water. Right? So in some ways, any of these critiques are going to stop you from the affirmative from accessing their answers. So then you need to apply these arguments. And, you need, and the phrase I think you really need to under, like, work into your vocabulary if you're going for a critique is this is another link. As many times as you can say this is another link, so you can't access this argument on the flow, that's like your probability of wins increases, right? The more you can be like, this is just another lie that the affirmative is telling you and explain why, then the more times, the more you're going to win. And you also then finally need to convince the judge to vote for the alternative, which 
uh, depending on the judge, can be kind of tough. So lots of people think, like, for instance, there's no alternative to capitalism uh, because they're embedded within an ideology that tells them that they deserve less than the whole damn pie. Uh, so, you know, the, then it can be kind of tough. And so you should kind of read your judge, right? Like, how much of a nihilist is your judge is a kind of question you should be asking yourself before you right, like walk into the debate. Like, how much value to life does this person actually think they have? Like, if you're like Bowers, it's just like, not, yeah, Bowers is just like protest. Yeah, I'll vote to protest this stuff. So will I. But then some people are like, not so much. So make that judgment. Be aware of it, right? So now I want to talk about green critiques and then some key terms that will come from those green critiques and then delve into some specifics. So are we clear? So maybe this is a good stopping point. Are we clear about kind of what you need to do if you're going to run a critique in a debate? Are there questions? They absolutely do. Just straight up reject. Reject. So, a reject alts definitely fly. Um, I think that we had a debater, for instance, who was in late out rounds of a number of tournaments, who was just going for, like, reject their metaphors because they're bad. Um, so vote neg. Um, I think that the question you should be asking yourself is, what does the thing do? Like, what does the judge do at the end of the debate? And then frame your alternative around that. So, like, does my rejection of the, does the, me as a judge, does my rejection of the affirmative open up space for something new? Does it allow us, to, does it allow me to lodge a protest? Does it allow me to withdraw from the ideological field of capital in order to let it collapse and see the fissures? Or is it like I join up with a movement? I, so I think that some judges will expect you to be like, this is exactly what the world looks like. But by and large, I think you can win a lot of debates in this community by being like discussion in the room, like framework arguments or like, um, you know, join up with, I forget what the other one you said was, but it was something along those lines, like right? Imagine yeah, imagine implementing and doing policy differently. Um, you know, join up with the movement, whatever it is. I think joining up with the movement's increasingly popular because of the socio-political context we're in. And maybe this is why these things are becoming more important is because we've reactivated history, which is something we'll talk about when we come to the capitalism lecture. Is that there are movements finally, again, there weren't for basically my entire life. Um, so people can much more see themselves doing a political action than maybe they could in, like even five years ago. 
So I think that anything will fly as long as you can frame it right and you have the right judge. Yeah. And that was what I was like trying to say when I was talking about them, is that like the problem with some projectiles is that they yeah, don't necessarily have the 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 like the evidence behind it or the explanation behind it of why of what rejection does and why that's important. And like yeah, it's you should only be like saying rejectiles bad if they are really doing it in a bad way. There are perfectly legitimate reasons that rejection has value as an alternative or to do something. Um, but like, yeah, make sure that they at least try to explain what rejection does instead of just like making your life difficult on purpose. Yeah. How do you feel about outfits are some form of reject and resync? Like reject the app and embrace the one in C's historical analysis, for example. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, what do I think? Yeah. Like, personally? Like, <laughs> like if I'm judging the debate, or debate like, debate. yeah, sure, they're definitely useful in the debate. I don't, they're generally useful in the debate. Personally, I'm not that persuaded by them, even though, like, I'll definitely vote on them. Because I want to know what my ballot does. Like, I want, when I sign and sign and vote for you what am i doing like and now i do analysis for a living i i have an analysis i don't fucking want your analysis <laughs> i have my own personal analysis like i want to know what i can do about the problem like and that can be just as simple as like saying no in this one instance can be good enough seems good enough to me but i want to know so it really depends on your judge i'd say More questions? All right. So I want to talk a little bit about green critiques and some terms you'll hear in from these green critiques and then some specific ones because we'll cover CAP this afternoon. So I thought I'd spend time mostly talking about environmental critiques because they're my favorite. It's like what I study for a living, and they're awesome. So green critiques come out of the movement. So green. So we're often used to thinking of theory and debate as like these like old dead, usually white guys. But like for instance, in Frank Wilderson's case, uh, you know, professors more generally, right? Like who don't really do anything, like. Wilderson kind of doesn't do very much, right? But in ecology, in ecological green theory, was birthed out of people protesting shit and out of scientists studying things then being like, everything's fucked. So the classic example is this biologist slash ecologist, Rachel Carson. 
Rachel Carson in 1962 published a book, Silent Spring, that argued that pesticides, DDT, nuclear testing, like the whole shebang of industrial civilization, um, is going to cause nature to die. And that will be a bad thing because nature is valuable, basically. And it will affect us in unknowable ways, so we should stop it. So, like, a good example of this is how the Green Revolution, a.k.a. the use of chemicals in agriculture, in order to increase output, may have allowed the growth of some human civilizations, but also simultaneously ruined ecosystems and in the long term has destroyed our ability to farm so like large portions of the world that used to be arable land particularly in parts of asia and africa that were subjected to chemical intensive agricultural production can no longer in the world of climate change and ecological change work can no longer feed the populations so we get food shortages and nutritional shortages, which are not the same thing, right? A nutritional shortage is like you're eating the food, but it doesn't give you any nutrients because, you know, that corn didn't, couldn't pull enough nutrients out of the soil, for instance, right? So her argument is this environment's important. We need to challenge it. And this birthed the modern environmental movement. People reading this came up with their own takes on what it meant to be and relate to the environment. And from that, and some other authors around the same time, environmentalism was born, right? What you understand as environmentalism is a product of, by and large, the post-World War II era. There was a wilderness preservation movement in the United States before that, that we'll, talk, we'll get to a little bit, and talk about in terms of theories of like deep ecology which it really influenced but i don't think but by and large a lot of the people concerned and writing about it are children are rachel carson's children so a good example of how this plays out is in earth day 1970. so earth day 1970 first earth day mobilizes millions of americans like biggest day of civic action in american history and it was multivocal. There were radical greens, right? So people who were like, the earth is all that matters. Support, you know. There were people really concerned with, and lots of those people at the time were really concerned with population growth. So overpopulation, which is kind of racist, but it has its like kind of racist histories. Um, although it's a weird, it's a difficult conversation because... There's some truth to it, but the way it's played out in the West is very racist. Um, there were like proto-environmental justice groups who were like, water, the water is polluted, so we can't drink it. So before the passage of the Clean Water Act, a uh, year after the first, uh, the first Earth Day in like 1972, there were suds, right, from like dishwashers and from clothes detergents, right, laundry detergent, that were taller than most people that were on the top of rivers. But there were also the Cuyahoga River, which is Booker's favorite. 
uh, runs through downtown Cleveland, caught on fire. Like the river was burning because it was so polluted. Several times, many times. Right, multiple times. But there was really one really famous time it caught on fire that made national headlines. So the people who were concerned about this became environmental justice groups. Then there's like sustainability, plant a tree, civic environmentalism. And so these sorts of people, even though it seems like the same, even though it seems like the same movement, have all these diverse pers perspectives that splintered off into these different groups that are represented in the different philosophies. So you get like the rise of environmental justice. You get Greenpeace and the Earth Liberation Front who are like burning down, you know, logging camps and shit and doing radical, you know, direct action against in defense of the earth, right? And there's also like corporate state sustainability efforts. Like, you know, um, this is like where we get the idea that businesses should have green products and act green while, you know, simultaneously, like, exploiting people and resources and shit. So, why is this important? And why should you be interested in green theory, in my opinion? So, the links and the alternatives are focused on what we should do on practice. So, there's going to be people writing specifically about the affirmatives on this topic, why they're bad, and then what we as individuals and as groups should do instead. So that will be directly tied to what the conversations in the debate. There are also internal debates. So some affirmatives, for instance, are not going to be very traditional on this topic. Right? I'm already, you know, thinking about like rocks rock slides and geothermal and stuff, right? Big missed opportunity if you don't think about geothermal energy as a possible KF because volcanoes are awesome. Um, so these sorts of Fs are directly critiqued within the green literature because there's no one who hates someone else in the environmental movement than another environmentalist. And I'll show you a good example of that here in a bit and also a lot of the writing style is really accessible because these are people who a lot of the authors are not people with phds they're not people with you know who taught they're publishing in newspapers and other outlets to motivate the public and to talk to other environmentalists right there's plenty of environmentalists out there without any kind of college education who are like sitting in trees and like just protesting the industrial destruction of the earth. So questions about that. All right, I want to spend some time talking about the key terms. Terms. First term is sustainability. We Hear sustainability a lot. It's bandied about. It's probably your university's favorite term. Sustainability comes out of this idea of nature as commons, as nature, as this resource that we all share. 
and that those resources are meant to sustain human and potentially biotic life, although usually not biotic life generally, usually just humans. But some people, some spins on it say all biotic life, right? And so sustainability in practice is an accounting of resources. So people are like, what do we need, how little do we need to consume in order for society to, humans to sustain themselves? So a good example of this is the carbon allowance. So remember yesterday when I was like, well, we have, we can pollute less in order to cross the particular thresholds than we thought we could because of these feedback mechanisms, right? In all of these discussions of how much we can pollute, that is an example of how sustainability measures our available resources. Because these people are like, exactly how much can I drive my car before I cause us all to go extinct. Okay, I'm going to drive it exactly that minus one, right? That's what it means to be sustainable. How many earths do we consume every year? Okay, well, we better get down to consuming the one earth year per year, right? Is basically, and so then, um, how many of you have measured your carbon footprint? This is a popular thing. Only Deborah's measured her carbon footprint. A few of you, yeah. That's a good example of sustainability because it's like sustainability discourse because it's exactly like how much do you pollute and how can we cut that down in a measured way in order to sustain the earth. So this plays itself in, out in numerous programs. Um, and so, and this will be a central kind of affirmative concept on this topic because we want to be sustainable. The truth be told, uh, there's not really good defenses, philosophical defenses of sustainability. So like the UN talks about sustainability a lot, but, and they are on some like good stuff, right? Like obviously we'd want to like increase people's quality of life while simultaneously protecting the environment. But also, like, there's some problems, as we'll see. Like, this is a very modern way to talk about the world. Next term, yeah, and Louisa, you can see all this by pulling it up on the Discord. The, the I can't do projectors, okay, so. The next term is anthropocentrism. Humans are the center of the world. Right? Anthro, human. Pocentrism or centrism. Centrism is center. So humans are the center of the world. So one way to think about this is this idea afforded by an author named Donna Haraway. And she says that there are three major wounds to the human, right? Into the human-centered view of the world. 
The first is the Copernican Revolution. The Earth is not the center of the universe. Right? Think about anthropocentrism like, at one point, humans literally thought we were the center of the goddamn universe. That's like next level, like, centeredness, right? Like, nothing else is valuable because we are at the center of the universe. Then, there's the Darwinian revolution, which is the idea that other that we are related to other animals, that we evolved. Then third is the Freudian revolution, which is the idea that we don't always know what we ourselves, basically, that there's an unconscious. So this is understanding it, seeing those three kind of scientific revolutions, you can see that humans have come a long way, potentially, but there's still something about human ethical systems that put us at the center, right? We're not too far removed from Copernicus in geological time. So there's a lot of humans who, like, think that, you know, the world revolves around and the universe revolves around the human because we're created in God's image, for instance. Um, that is false. We are not, the world does not revolve around us. But what this idea that it's anthropocentric means is that we're the ones worthy of elevated ethical consideration and we're the sole possessors of meaningful consciousness. In critique arguments, this means that, well, it will often function as a root cause argument. So it'll be like, you value human extinction as the central thing. That means you can't solve the root cause of your plan because it means we will continue to destroy and devalue the rest of the world. Or, you know, and this is kind of my favorite, is people will argue that your anthropocentrism is a part of a complex relationship of hierarchies. So it's not just that we put human, that the idea that we put humans over nature is related in one way or another to the way in which we put men over women, the rational over the irrational, so on and so forth, right? And that that underlies a whole set of devaluations that justify our destruction of each other and of the world questions about that. You'll hear anthropocentrism numerous contexts this year. Next is industrialism. My favorite living boy. I can't write anything without talking about why industrialism is trash. So industrialism is a society, is the idea that we have a society based on the mass industrial production of goods particularly through the exploitation of the non-human world. So it's that we have a society where we take resources, send them to factories, and turn the earth, the goods of like the collective mother that we inhabit, right? And that nurtures us into things that we can sell on the market. That allows us to destroy it and devalue it. It operates as shorthand and will, in a lot of these critiques, as shorthand for the shitty ecological effects of capitalism in human society. 
So whenever one, anytime anyone says industrialism, what they really mean is that we produce a bunch of goods that destroys the environment. And some people will even say that it's really just short, well, you even use it as like a shorthand for civilization as such. So we're going to talk about critiques of civilization. Like farming went awry. We all went awry at when we started farming. That was when humans made a big mistake. Next is ecology. So the reason I use ecology here, or insert ecology here, rather than like taking it at face value, is because people have different takes on ecology, and ecology doesn't always refer to just like the non-human world. So, like, often we think of ecology as just like what the biologists tell us it is. But that's not really true. There's other types of ecologies. So, for instance, there's a really famous uh, philosopher slash activist, this guy Felix Guattari, who was famous for writing with Gilles Deleuze. Uh, we'll talk, I'll mention them later, but we won't go in depth. You'll hear about them, though, particularly if you debate the Lewis and Clark. Um, who, and he wrote a really famous book called The Three Ecologies that argued that there were three different ecologies, not one, and that they were all interrelated. There's the, like, nature ecology that you're used to, the non-human ecology. There's the ecological forces of, like, the visible social and economic and then there's our psychic ecologies that like our unconscious and our feel like our feelings and affects or unconscious feelings and energies that drive us are their own set of relationships. So this is why it's best to can think of ecologies as a complex relationship of things that where all of the things and their meaning or their importance or their value is dependent on the relationship to all of those other things. That those relationships can shift. Uh, Deborah, you seem to be grappling with this. Yeah, so it's difficult to get at first. But think of an ecology as just an abstract Relation, set of relationships. So the ecology is not the things themselves, but like the lines you would draw in those like network, right? And that the importance of the things themselves shifts in their relationship. So here, here's a concrete example. So in an ecosystem, we'll just use an ecosystem example. If you remove the pair, the spiders, then the ecology and the value of certain bugs can change because those bugs can go from helpful set of ecosystem for a set of ecosystem services. So they provide food, sufficient food. They like, you know, water or not water. They pollinate different plants. They can go from helpful to harmful because they overwhelm and oh, like overshoot their resources. 
So, like, another example of this might be wolves. So, you know how, I don't know if you're familiar with this idea that cloven animals will always overshoot their natural habitats if they don't have predators. So, by getting rid of the wolves in an ecosystem, we turn the deer from majestic creatures who have as much value as any of us to these things that like destroy habitats writ large because they'll just eat everything. So the value of the deer is dependent on the wolf. Does that make sense? The function of the deer in an ecological relationship depends on the sufficient number of predators to consume it. And we can say that this is true in society too, right? So like, I'm not valuable without all of you, right? Imagine yourself like, imagine yourself like on Matt Damon going to Mars and like living permanently. That life would be, I mean, really terrible. Right? Because our human value is about our set of relationships to each other. So when we say ecology, we don't mean just like nature. Although, often people will mean nature, but not always. Next is epistemology. Which is the question of how we know things. So how do we know what we know? What are the methods at to which we get to our knowledge? Whenever you hear this word, you need to cue in on that. And you need to understand that what the, affirm the negative is saying or what the affirmative is saying is that you're lying, basically. That the arguments overestimate our ability to understand the world around us. They skew reality in a particular set of ways. They um, call into question our solvency, things like that. And instead, we should view the world in a different way. So the security K is a classic example of this. Like the security K is like 80% epistemology because the security K argues that the authors that compose and the academics and the you know, lanyards that compose the national security apparatus are involved in this historical process of creating enemies because it gives them jobs and allows us to further our imperialist ambitions and allows us to shore up state power against minorities. And so the authors of the security K will then go through like the different places people are funded from line by line, and be like, yeah, they're a CIA front. This other organization is paid for by this arms manufacturer, so on and so forth. So then the affirmative or negative will have debates about what the qualifications and motivations of the authors are for framing things in particular ways. So I'm going to talk about methods case really quick because it's related and it's becoming a thing. Methods case are dope. They are my jam. Love it. So methods K argues that debate 
Eve is fundamentally an act of scholarship. That before you even say we should do X, Y, and Z in a policy realm, you go research it. You engage in scholarship. And that the people you research themselves are also engaged in scholarship. So that means that we should understand the process of research, a.k.a epistemology before we think about whether the plan is a good idea because the epistemology de-justifies the plan and also we're really just here for the scholarship at the end of the day which there's different internal links to scholarship so like i'm a big competitiveness is the best internal link to scholarship type of guy but i'm also persuaded by like these arguments because you know, I've never left the academy. Uh, I got a PH. I got an undergrad at Wayne State for after a while, after my eligibility ran out, <laughs> uh, and then like some people at Baylor were like, "Hey, you know, you're pretty good at this debate thing. Would you like to come coach for us and get a master's degree?" And I was like, "Cool." And then Georgia was like, you know, you should come work with us. So, you know, I filled out some other applications and studied and read some stuff. And was like, cool. And then studied and read some more stuff. And then I like applied for some jobs, got one at Penn State and studied and read some more stuff. It's been one long line of scholarship. The reason I am here today and I'm a scholar is because of debate. So a methods case persuasive to lots of people because the people who are judging you, a lot of them, like to study things because of debate, and that's the upshot. So these cases argue that we should question the way that we engage the world first, in our scholarship first, before we think about the consequences of the plan. And so a good example of why this is persuasive is because of this guy named Jerome Corsi. So there's a lot of really bad people to come out of debate. Ted Cruz is one of them. Like human garbage, right? Like slimy, just like his, persuades people just for his own self-interest. But Ted Cruz is no Jerome Corsi. Let me tell you, Jerome Corsi is a supposed scholar who Debated, I think, at like Georgetown. He was really good at debate. Was in the out rounds of the NDT, the National Debate Tournament. And then, from the his position, went and got some graduate degrees along the way. And now works at right-wing think tanks, where he writes, where he writes books about why we should murder Arabs. Because terrorism will cause extinction. So we should just go around, bomb all the Arabs, because, yeah. So this is like a very persuasive set of arguments, and the methods case is very persuasive, because people who have been around the community see that the way that we research debate has an influence on the people and types of scholars we become, right? Like, I'm a lefty critical scholar because I read the CAPK all the time on the F and neck, in part. So 
this is, you know, persuasive. So whenever you hear methodology first or a method K, you know, should know that you need to defend your epistemology in your research. So like last year, I went out and cut a bunch of cards that were like, we can research cyber, the cyber realm, and that doing so is accurate and good. And people write that. I mean, people respond to these things, but you need to know that. The last one is ontology, which is the hardest. You're going to hear ontology a bunch this year, though. What is the can? What does it mean to be a being? Or what is a being? That is the question of ontology. Not what is this being, but what is a being? What is an object? And sometimes we confuse that with the, what's called the ontic. So there's the ontological which is the what is a being, then the ontic, which is like a region. It's like, what is this particular set of objects? So like, what does it mean to be a being? Is a being an inert object to be manipulated and managed and governed? Or what does it mean to be a cat? These are two things. One is the ontological, the other is the ontic. Does this distinction make sense to you? It's very up here, right? Because the what doesn't mean to be a being is a very weird thing that we don't really have good English language for. The people who started writing about this were writing mostly in German. And not only do the Germans have a million words for sadness and shame, but they also have a bunch of good words for writing about objects and the status of objects. And so this will be an argument that it's like you have to engage ontology first because it cuts to questions like solvency and our relationship to the world before we think about doing these other things. Because, you know, policies kind of fail a lot currently, right? There's this kind of serial policy failure warrant. Like, policies don't, like, work. Like, we pretend they do. But major policies passed, by and large, have unintended effects that we don't, can't even think about. And by, by and large, don't even solve the problem, right? In our current context, we're like, you know, the Paris Climate Accords is what'll solve the problem. And then it turns out that that don't work. Still on target for five degree over 100 over pre-industrial level warming. All right, so now I want to talk about some specific critiques. Are there any questions about those terms first? I have 20 minutes left. Can I get through some of these specific green critiques? But I thought this would be more helpful than like focusing on specifics because they're really all just de moving deck chairs of these different terms. So first is Heidegger. Boyer hates Heidegger, but I gotta give a shout out to the Heidegger K. Uh, so Heidegger's the guy who first asked the question of ontology. He argued that Western thought 
has failed to ask the question of what it means to be an object or a being. Um, that means that the technologies that we try to reveal in the world because we don't know what a being are, are always partial. They always conceal some aspect of a perspective at the same time they reveal other things because we don't even know what a thing is. So we don't have a way of approaching it effectively. So our perspective is always skewed. That's the first argument. And from that, he derives two further arguments that, will be, that are basically the debate arguments that come forth. The second thing is that our technologies of managing objects or beings in the world, so policies, scientific interventions, do violence in the world because they're overly rational and turn us into machines. So a good way of thinking about this is medical experimentation. So like we experiment on humans and animals because we assume that we can just manipulate a set of humans to know a set of previous outcomes. And maybe we can, but that leads to lots of bad results, right? Think like the Tuskegee experiments. Think like you know, cutting open animals to watch them bleed and see the results, right? Think about um, forest management that turns that, you know, tries to control, rationally control and manipulate the world. And that that forest management leads sometimes to ecological collapse. Also, um, and the third final one is that rational management techniques and particularly sustainability keeps the world as a standing reserve to be used later. So not only do we use things as a means to, and people as a means to an end, which allows us to like murder people and bomb people for political ends and do bad stuff, but also then when we do try and save things, it's just so we can like use it later. So think about this like carbon accountings type stuff, right? The reason we want to conserve natural resources like carbon and the atmosphere is so that we can just use that same atmosphere and carbon at a later date. So it's an object to be used and expelled rather and destroyed in the long term. And this has, you know, lots of negative consequences. Arguably, it leads, will lead to ecological collapse. If you want to know more about this, there is a book by this that's edited by Liddell McWhorter. Um, she's a professor at the University of Richmond. There's an introduction to the book that explains Heidegger's, Heidegger's ecological philosophy in depth. You can also engage this um, the work of this guy, um, Michael Zimmerman, he's edited and written numerous books on this subject. So those are some good places to start. Next is deep ecology. Love me some deep ecology. So in the 1970s, this guy named Arnie Nice, he's Norwegian, writes this essay called The Shallow or the deep. And in it, he argues that there are two types of ecology. 
They're shallow ecology. And shallow ecology is like management ecology, like sustainability. Like people who see ecology as something that can be manipulated as a set of resources in order to sustain human society and industrialism and tries to fix things by just moving around the deck chairs. And then there's deep ecology. And deep ecology is a worldview that views humans in relationship to their independent upon their environments with all other biotic and sometimes abiotic things. So like we are related not just to the, so our existence is related not just to like the trees, the animals, but also like particular rock formations, right? So if you move a particular rock formation, blow it up, then it's going to have long-term consequences. So like, for instance, a good deep ecologist could have foreseen the fact that fracking causes earthquakes when normal ecologists couldn't because they didn't think about like the importance of like geological fissures and shit right they're like the rocks are just dead material um they'll make these critiques will make several arguments they'll make arguments about short-term solutions and how these short-term solutions short circuit our engagement with the world um and will um, shift our ability to find new ways of engaging with the world. So a good example of this, if you want more about this, um, I wrote an article a while ago about this uh, on Earth Day 1970 that Missouri State apparently cites a lot and will be reading this year, I guarantee it. So I might have to vote against my own cards um, or... But it'll happens. it happens. There you go. So some problems, right? Um, so yeah, you want to work that uh, articles in the Southern Communication Journal, um, and I will be having a follow up to it that probably probably won't come out in mid season, but I'm gonna try to make it come out mid season, um, get it published. Um, and then the alternative depends. So the alternative might be just some like rethinking like pie in the sky like we're all one with the universe all or it can be like direct action so people who are in deep into deep ecology um are the people who founded like earth first greenpeace the earth liberation front the people reading this are coming out of deep ecology and then writing and following up on the arnie nay sky are people on the front lines sitting in trees, blocking pipelines. You know, another kind of book along those lines, which I don't know people will cite or not, but is a really interesting book, is The Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey. It's a fictional book about the monkey wrench gang who go around and, like, take down, you know, the machines used to deforest, old-growth forests. So next is anarcho-primitivism. So we heard anarcho-primitivism a bunch on last year's topic. Um, 
written particularly by this guy, Ted Kaczynski. So if you ever hear a card written by Ted Kaczynski, there's something you need to know. Because apparently people didn't know this. Ted Kaczynski was, is, slash was, I guess he's no longer, but was the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski writes from a federal supermax prison in Colorado because he sent some mail bombs to some paper companies and tech companies. Um, a better author, if you're interested in anarcho-primitivism, is a guy named John Zerzan, who is real dope. Uh, Kaczynski and Zerzan have some disputes. So, like, Zerzan thinks, like, like we should value women. Kaczynski doesn't. Uh, Zerzan thinks, like, we should, like, fix inequality. Kaczynski thinks inequality is good because it's, like, fucking nature, man. So, anarcho-primitivism is a philosophy that argues that we should return to hunter-gatherer societies in some way or another. That where we all went wrong was the development of high technology beginning with farming and the domestication of animals. Because from the farming and domestication of animals, we started overshooting our local ecologies, right? So did you know that, for instance, the reason that Iraq is currently largely a desert and experienced desertification is because of farming? That... The reason that large parts of Iraq are and like the Middle East are so de desertified, not like the Arabian Peninsula, but like other parts of the Middle East, is because ancient civilizations irrigated with water that was salt, somewhat salty, that was partially salinated, and that when that evaporated, it left salt in the ground, and eventually things could grow, couldn't grow as much, right? Like the Tigris and the Euphrates provided the cradle of civilization because humans could farm food there. We can't at nearly the same rate. So they argued that this is proof that farming is where it all went wrong. That when we sat down and started domesticating plants and animals, that then, you know, we had a bad things. It feels bad, man. That made us, makes us unhappy. Too. So they have different ways of ending technology and civilization. So the Unabombers, like, obviously, you should, like, bomb stuff, destroy technology, be a nihilist. Ted Kaczynski is a lot more nice, is a lot nicer and more negotiable about it. He's like, well, you know, we should, like, form communities and do things to, you know, change and alter society. So I can cover two more, and then you can kind of read the, the rest of them I have there for you. But I have seven minutes left, so I want to cover these last two. The first is social ecology. Google Murray Bookchin. This is a meme. Social ecology is a meme on the internet. Uh, Murray, social ecology is a form of anarchism that argues that we should retreat to municipalities and direct deliberation as a way of relating to our environments and each other 
because those direct forms of direct deliberation, deliberation at the municipal level, so at the city or the neighborhood level, is what will allow us to escape capital and will allow us to make better decisions about resources and the way we relate to the earth. It comes out of two different critiques. The first is a critique of capitalism as destroying the planet, which we'll talk more about later. But basically, capitalism and the state drive ecological and social crises. Second is a critique of other critiques. So Murray Bookchin wrote at length about why social why anarcho-primitivists and deep ecologists were bad, why they hated humans, and critiques of anthropocentrism are really a hatred of humans, and that humans are like, okay, I guess. So, and that these critiques let capitalism off the hook. So if we go around thinking all humans are bad, then we will ignore the fact that actually the people, there's not that many people actually destroying the planet. That there's like a hundred people responsible for the vast majority of ecological destruction. And most people like nature and want to live and don't want to profit off of nature. I'm sure there wouldn't be very many of you who would think it would be a good idea to like own you know, an oil company or like deforest old growth forests so you could make some money. Most people aren't that way. It's a few capitalists who are responsible. So social ecology argues that if we have local direct action movements against those things, and that we start deliberating locally about what to do, then we will be able to stop it and create a better society. Um, social ecology is really accessible online, would recommend. The last one I want to talk about, because eco-colonialism and environmental justice are going to be big on the topic, but they're much more self-explanatory, and then I have a list at the end. The last one is ecofeminism, which is dope. It's where it's at. So ecofeminism, um, a lot of ecofeminists come out of a critique of deep ecology as uh, he and anarcho-primitivism is a he-man woman hating club. Um, most people in the deep ecology and anarcho-primitivism, such as myself, are cishet white dudes um, who are like crunchy and never shower. And um, the ecofeminists are like this kind of like really masculine way of just like go out and burn down the, you know, paper company or whatever is like, you know, not totally wrong, but is a little patriarchal in that the subjugation of nature is, has been historically tied in the West to the subjugation of women. So I don't know how much you know about the history of Western society, but like, at the beginnings of Western society, including in ancient Athens, we th people thought that women were lesser because they were closer to animals, and animals are nature, right? They're less rational. So there was an assumption in Western philosophy that women were less rational because they're closer to nature and therefore are not citizens and should be subjected, should be, um, you know, subjected and 
oppressed, right? And nature can therefore be destroyed uh, relatedly, right? And this has become broader more recently, a set of critiques also of like the destruction of like the less rational, the disorderly, the black, right? These are all categories of things and people who are like associated closer to nature in Western thought than with rationality, which is like cishet white dudes. So this critique will be powerful on this topic, I think, because it critiques capitalism, um, because capitalism is a part of this kind of competitive environment of, you know, the most rational, the most competitive, aka the most masculine wins, but also a lot of the advantages are gonna be things like hegemony like the economy, and hegemony is like patriarchy 101. Like U.S. hegemony is like, we need daddy slash, you know, the big and strong to come in and discipline all the other countries or the fight amongst themselves and have nuclear war. That is the justification for U.S. hegemony. That is the patriarchy and masculinity 101. So I think that, you know, this will be powerful against a lot of middle-of-the-road Fs. And then there's a bunch of alternatives you can get as crazy or as concrete as you want. They run from, like, direct action, specific ways to relate to each other, to, like, Earth Goddess, Mother, Earth Mother things, Gaia, the Gaia myth, slash hypothesis that Earth is our mother. So the entire gamut. Questions. All right. So there's a list at the end of the PDF of the PowerPoint of arguments you also need to be prepared for on this topic, and they manifest in other ways. If you have questions about critiques, and it can be as basic as you want or as complicated as you want. You are welcome to ask me. I am here through tomorrow. I'm leaving Wednesday morning because I got to go hang out with Joe Packer. So, um, you know, feel free to come up and ask. Cool. It's, it's like lunchtime, isn't it? Yeah, what do you want for lunch from Wallace? Um, do they have like a vegan burrito option? <laughs> don't want the link into those things. I don't. Anything that doesn't have. Let me look. <laughs>